You can help support the channel by heading to our merchandise store and picking up some of our great aircraft designs created by our graphic designer. We have everything from fighters to transport aircraft, which you can choose to have printed on t-shirts, mugs, stickers and much much more. Head to the description below and click the links and pick up your design today. Thank you and enjoy. Pete, when did you become interested in aviation? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because I've been thinking about that and did I always want to be a pilot? No, not really. As a young kid growing up, I'd made all the FX models and stuff like that. Was I particularly good at it? No, there was glue everywhere and probably more paint on me than there was on the models. But was I really destined to be a pilot? Don't know. My brother joined the Air Force. My brother's about nine years older than me. He was having a good time. He joined as a technician. And I thought, Do you know what? Yeah, I'd like to give that a go. And so I went off to the careers information office at Reading, went through, didn't have the qualifications, so I had to hang around a bit, work on an English O-level, which I didn't have at the time. Went back to the uh, careers information office, and they said, yeah, you can come in as an apprentice. And I thought, okay, yeah, that works for me. And so, so I joined up as an apprentice back in 72, uh, went off to Cosford, and it was uh, LTEC Air, as they called it, Electronic Technician Air. You did two years training for your INC, and then another year technical training, and you graduated as a corporal, and then became a sergeant. Fortuitously, did very well on the course, and off the INC, four of us got sent down to Biggin Hill for officer and air crew selection. Mm -hmm. So fantastic, and then, oh, chance of being a pilot. Yeah, that, that, that seems good to me. Uh, there was a good mate of mine, Bob McAlpine, and I were successful. Air Force said, right, fantastic guys, you pass, you're going to be pilots, off you go to university. Uh, no, I want to fly. No, no, you have to go to university. So Bob went off to Manchester and I went down to Southampton. Cut a long story short, basically there was just no time for studying. With all the partying, flying, playing hockey, and just generally socialising. Nah. So in the second year, having found my second year exams, the university said, no, nah, this is not for you. You've done the short course. Thank you very much. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> the Air Force were very good, very good about it. I remember telling my boss, Keith Jarvis, as we were taxiing out on a bulldog, oh, by the way, boss, I've failed. I've been kicked out of the university. We nearly went off the side of the taxiway, but never mind. So, yeah, off direct entry to Henlow, did my officer training, and from Henlow uh, on to Linton on News to start my flying training. Thanks. Started off on the JP3 as it was, and it was basically did 100 hours on the JP3, not pressurised, but really nice aircraft to fly, learning your pilot skills, and from then you moved on to the JP5. Slightly better performance, you know. You can fly around low-level nav about 180 knots. In the JP-5, you're up at 240, which nowadays seems like nothing. Mm. But to a young pilot going through, that, that was really fast. Uh, so you did 100 hours JP-3, 60 hours JP-5, uh, after which, that was you graduated and then off to Valley for your advanced flying training course. Valley at the time, the uh, NAP was just going out. The Hunters was still there on three squadron the hawk was coming in but i was too big for the gnat so i ended up on the three squadron flying the hunter fantastic mm. lovely aircraft and that, that really did have performance you're in the two sticker for all your dual sorties stuff like that but then 
for all the other stuff, formation stuff like that, you went off into the single sticker, which was the F6. So that was the only time I've ever flown a true single-seat aircraft. And the F6 was, again, a rocket ship compared to the two-sticker. So I completed the course there at Valley. And then it was probably my only hold. We spent, I think it was about three months holding down at South Cerny with a good friend of mine called John Foster. Mike Lawrence was the test pilot down at, um, I was trying to remember the airfield, so Campbell. So all the aircraft had gone through maintenance, then need to be flown back to their units. So as holding pilots, Fozzie and I just flew around down there and then delivered the aircraft back to their units and we had a two-seat hunter that we could then fly back to get back to Kemble. Nice. There was no officer's mess accommodation at Kemble, so we're actually at South Cerny, which is uh, an army mess. Right. Uh, I must admit, great, you know, two young guys just finished flying training down there. We went down to the local pub for a couple of beers in the evening, and uh, it was deserted. Nobody there, and Fozzie thought, what have we come to? You know, we're going to be down here for three months. How are we going to socialise? And the landlord says to us, ah, no, you guys are coming too early. You need to come back at nine o'clock. Why? Well, that's when all the girls arrive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And we thought, "Mm, yeah, I think we're being wound up here, but never mind. So we went off, came back, nine o'clock, still cobweb city, nobody there. And then, I kid you not, a quarter past nine, these young lovely ladies walked in. And what it was, there was an international riding stables just up the road from South Cerny. And of course, they finished putting the horses to bed and stuff like that. So we had a great time for those three months. <laughs> As ever, I digress. So, after Valley, off to Rossi Mouth to the Tactical Weapons Unit, 2TWU, where you did all your advanced training, weapons, gunnery, bombs, rockets, uh, air combat, air-to-air gunnery, stuff like that. One of the questions you posed was, how, how come I ended up on the Phantom? Well, as I said, you're talking to a man who got lost between Lossy Mouth and Tame Range, which is a massive, I think, 40 miles. Don't quote me on that. So nah, the guys there said, no, your forte is combat. You did well at combat, Edward Gunnery, and you clearly need a navigator to get around. So hence, I got posted to the Phantom OCU down at Coningsby. Yeah, so as I was saying, so after Lossy Mouth, down to the Phantom OCU at Connorsby, 228 OCU. Uh, met up with quite a few friends. Dom Riley, who uh, kind of followed us through flying training, one of my friends there. And the navigators on the course, I got paired up with a chap called Brent Henry, who was an experienced navigator, lovely chap. And Mike King, who's still one of my very good friends, was also one of the navigators on the course. You went through the course as a course, a collective group, uh, I think there are about 10 of us I have to look at, uh, and you stayed as a team, did ground school. If memory serves, ground school was about four weeks, somewhere around that time, which is all the ground school learning about the aircraft, aircraft systems, and then backed up with a simulator where you've put in practice what you've learned, look at the emergencies, look about handling the aircraft, uh, and then you go into the air intercept trainer. Hmm. I'm jumping ahead a bit for the tornado, but the Phantom intercept trainer was called the Pit. Uh, when the tornado was introduced and they wanted to do the tornado intercept trainer, you end up a bit like only fools and horses. You can't have a thing called the Tit. So it became the tornado air intercept trainer. But going back to the Phantom, ours was the Pit, and that's where you went off. And it was 
basically a desk console. We sat side by side with the navigator, instructor in between. I knew the pilot would fly it and the navigator would command you where to go, you know, port. If it, they tell you to go port, that's a standard turn. Harder, increase by 15 degrees. Ease, reduce by 15, reduce by 15. And then you controlled the intercepts. And there was these magnificent keys that you learnt, which was on a 180, for example, as you start the final turn in behind the target, that at 150 to go, you have to hit this. I think it was 22 off at nine, but don't quote me. I do remember it was 180 at four, and then that would roll you out two miles behind the target. Mm. So you practice doing that from known headings, unknown headings. And that was primarily, you know, the first part of the course in terms of the pilots and navigators working together, completing these intercepts. So once you finished all this ground school phase, you then went off flying with a QFI. I remember Roy Lawrence was mine. That name will come up again later on. But Roy, fantastic instructor, QFI, taught us how to fly the aircraft, and you then did basic circuits. Then night, you went off on a crew solo. Brent Henry and I flew together for the first time. Then you did night crew solo. Then formation, basic formation, and formation rejoins. And that completed, if you like, the conversion phase, you converting onto the Phantom. The next part was, right, now we're going to operate it. Now we start doing the intercepts that I talked about. Uh, and you went off, and that was the basic intercept phase. Once you completed that, I was trying to remember, I don't think we did ECM on the electronic countermeasures on the OCU. We certainly did it on the squadron. I don't recall us doing gunnery on the OCU either. Mm. But uh, then you went on to the air combat phase. 1v1, building it up into 2v1. And I think if memory serves, I have to look at the logbook, 2v1 as far as you went. And then you did your graduation sortie and they said, yep, fantastic, off you go. So that was the end of the Phantom OCU at Coningsby. Then came our postings. Uh, and I was really lucky, don't know why, but I got posted to Germany. Nice. Uh, 92 Squadron and flying the F4. So I was the first first tourist that went to Germany. They hadn't posted first tourists oh. out there before because the environment, it was a challenging environment. Yeah. So I got posted out there. Brent got posted out there. Mike King, I mentioned, got posted to 92 with us. Brent, for his sins, went to 19. Our sister squad <laughs> out yeah. there. And that was it. Off to Germany. Fantastic. You know, really, you know, all your dreams come to Still a bachelor, having a great time. So I arrived on 92 Squadron. Uh, fantastic and they paired me up with a chap called Dave Gledhill whom uh, yeah you're nodding first guest yeah was he yeah, yeah so Gladys bless his name <laughs> was my navigator experience air defender absolutely fantastic chap and um, basically he took me through my conversion yeah uh, it was himself and a chap called M squared Mac McNeil Matthews also because young first tourist you know I knew nothing Gladys looked after us had a fantastic time out there and you know just loved it. Lots of flying. We were doing 30 hours a month. I think my best month wow. was about 40 hours. Wow. Yeah. Compare that to what the pilots yeah. are getting nowadays. Yeah. That was fantastic. Learned our skills, you know, rushing around at low level. And the, the good thing about the Phantom, one of the questions you asked is, you know, at the time in Germany, you know, the Dutch hadn't got their F-16s. They were coming. So everybody else was flying around in 104s and things like that. So if you like, we were the big dog on the patch because we had, you know, our Fox 1, uh, the Sparrow, AIM-9s and a gun and a pretty agile aircraft for its time. 
So, you know, we were, the, we were the big guys on the block. So it was a lovely aircraft to fly. Looking back at it, it's like looking at this one now and you think, my <laughs> God, <laughs> you know. Where's the sat-nav? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How, how do we do anything? You know, and as I said, we taught, I think this has shrunk or I've got bigger because <laughs> I certainly struggled again. But no, coming back to the Phantom, it was fantastic. We used to go down to Detchi and we did combat with the 104s down there and other people. But it was always, right, we're going to discount the Fox one. You can't have the Fox one. Yeah, because we'd have killed them even before we got to the pass. That came back to haunt us later on, but we'll talk about <laughs> that. But the thing was, yeah, it was all, you know, guns and Fox 2s. Uh, and fantastic time, learning skills. So I mentioned Dom Riley. Well, Dom was the course behind me and he got sent out, joined us on 92. So Dom and I were good buddies there with Kingy and there were the three bachelors who lived on the same corridor in the block. After we'd been there about 18 months and that, you know, a standard Friday night, a few beers, being the young thrusters we were, you know, we were talking to our flight commander, lovely chap, Graham Clark, guns, sadly no longer with us. And I must admit, Dom and I had had a few beers, as you did in the bar at Vildenrath, and we said, look, you never give us any responsibility. You know, we can't do anything, we're not authorizers, we can't do this, we can't do that. He said, okay, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a QI. And Dom said, I want to go on the Red Arrows and stuff like that. They said, are you boys serious? I said, yeah, yeah, I really like it. He said, right, fill in the paperwork, I'll submit the forms. And I won't use the exact words he said, but basically, <laughs> if you screw up, don't come crying to me. Right. And he was good to his word. And after about 18 months of being on 92 Squadron, I got sent off to do the QI course, Qualified Weapons Instructor course, mm. back at Coningsby. Stu Black, which is another name that will come up again. Stu Black was one of the instructors there on the course. Really good course, really challenging, hard work. I'm not going to say it's a Top Gun course, it wasn't. You yeah. know, but it was a, a good weapons instructor course. And uh, fortuitously, I won the uh, top prize on the course. Nice. Back to Germany, 92 Squadron, to complete my tour. Fantastic. So I'd been in Germany about 24, 25 months. And it was about November, uh, so it'd be November 82. My poster called me up. These are the guys that send you off on your next assignment, etc., etc. And poster called up and said, uh, Pete said, yeah. He said, you put down exchange. Yeah, I did. Are you still interested? Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You know, Tell me, talk to me about it. He said, um, how about uh, NS Oceana? Fantastic. Where is it? <laughs> he said, Virginia Beach, Virginia. No, it's still not helping. Give us another. He said, just south of Washington. Oh, in the States. He said, yeah. He said, uh, fly in the Tomcat. I said, I'm packed. When do I go? Yeah. And that was, that was it. Um, and literally it was, uh, I can't remember, it was about four to six weeks, boom, off to the States. Thanks. That night, bearing in mind this was, seven, this was what, 82? cost me a hundred quid in the bar at Wildenrath buying people drinks to celebrate. <laughs> and why it had come up a short notice, what happened was the exchange was originally Royal Navy to United States Navy. When the Royal Navy got rid of what was then the Art Royal, an 892 squadron than that, the exchange moved F4 to F4. So it was RAF F4 to United States F4, again still based at Virginia Beach, Virginia. 
because they were getting rid of the F-4s, all of a sudden the United States Navy said, that, well, there's no F-4, it's going to be F-4 to F-14, and we want somebody to start in January. And hence, I lucked in, and that was how I got the posting across there. Stu Black, who I'd mentioned was one of the instructors on the OCU, he and I were paired up to go there as, as a crew, effectively. So Stu being the experienced backseater, me being the experienced pilot, both of us weapons instructors, because that was going to be our job in the States when we got there. Mm -hmm. So off we went to the States, just before Christmas, which we arrived out there, and uh, what they did, you have a host officer, a gentleman that looks after you. Yeah, there were two Brits already out there on the F-4, who we could talk to and stuff like that. But mine was a chap called uh, Dick Gallagher, his lovely wife, Roz. Uh, so they looked after me as soon as I arrived, stayed at their house with them until I got settled in my own apartment and stuff like that. Dick, bless him, had a look when we set this up. I said, I wonder where Dick got to here. He ended up as a three-star admiral. Wow. Did exceptionally wow. well. Commanded the uh, John S. Dennis and stuff like that. But well-deserved. He was a talented pilot. So, into the States, you know, settled down Christmas, boxed in, and then our course started in January. And the course was very much along the lines of the F4 course, pretty much. You, you did a um, standard conversion, ground school, learn about the aircraft, learn about the weapons system, stuff like that. And then they had two simulators. One was called the 2F112, one was called the 2 Echo 6. And forgive me, I can't remember which way around they were, but one was designed for training, flying, you could actually land on the carrier, catapult off the carrier, stuff like that. And the other one was more designed for intercept combat. Right. Oh, yeah. But they had fantastic trainers because there was no such thing as a two-stick F-14. It wasn't, not really? No, never oh. built. So there were only ever single stickers. Okay. So goes to your next question, well, how did you learn to fly it? You yeah. know? <laughs> right. So why haven't you did the thing called a flip-flop? And this is where Dick Gallagher was my sponsor officer, looked after us out there. So what happens is you get in the back seat as a student pilot, your instructor pilot gets on the front and he goes off and flies around for about two hours. Right, this is what a takeoff looks like. This is the landing, so fly it, so maneuver it. So just to like. get used to the feel of it. Yeah, and you come back land and the Navy, very efficient, you hot pit. So basically you go into the pits, shut the right engine down, they plug in the fuel, fill you up to fuel again, start the engines up, taxi out. And then what you did while in the pits was this one, you shut down both engines and switch seats. Right. Refuel, and you went off and did it again. Only this time, you're in the front flying. And that was it, so yeah. So would, uh, when you were in the back for that sortie, would they be telling you what they're doing? Or, yeah. So, right, yeah. okay, so just, like, yeah. just relax that you were taking it all in. Yeah, there's no controls, there's no thrust levers, nothing like that, you, you just watch what it's doing. Bear in mind, you've flown the simulator, you've done all the stuff in the simulator with Weasel, it's of course I was Weasel, because uh, he looked a bit like a Weasel, <laughs> I digress as ever. But yeah, so th that was it, so you can offer so your first flight, actually following it, yeah, you're on your own. So How was that then? What was your first flight oh, like? Fantastic. Absolutely loved it. She was an awesome aircraft, you know. Compared to the F4, and I love the F4, it's a lovely aircraft to fly, this was next generation. Oh, but, so you could see the leap forward. Oh, it was right. huge. Absolutely huge performance, you know, automatic wind sweep, maneuver, engines, it was just everything. And the other thing, we'll talk about the F3 a little bit in a minute, or F2, F3. 
But one of the things with the Tomcat was it had a system called OBC, which was onboard checkout. Basically, you ran the onboard checkout and it checked every system, all the systems in the aircraft. It would look at the radar, it would look at the um, radar and say, right, of the 24, I think it was 24 radar channels and 18 CWs, something like that, it would tell you which was your most powerful channel, right. which was your weakest channel. Did your single target track work? Was the multi-scan working? And it would tell you what was wrong with the aircraft. And if there was something wrong, what you do, there was this truck that went around, line truck, that would have all these line replaceable units on it. You call the crew chief over and say, Here's crew chief, here's the OBC, have a look. Yeah, okay, stand by, sir. They'd open up the turtle back, pull it out, you're out. So plug and play type thing. Yeah, exactly that. Close it up. He said, run the OBC again, sir. Run the, and it was actually controlled by the backseater. But you'd run the OBC again on board checkout. You're up, sir. You're out of it. I did, I looked at my logbook. I think it was 1,038 hours I did on the Tomcat. In three years, it wasn't bad. In those 1,038 hours, I only ever flew with the radar not working four times. That, wow. Yeah, uh, no, but that, because it's designed to be on a carrier. It was fleet air superiority, so you don't have time to mess around. You know, it worked. And so, it was, so obviously you work with a nav on the Phantom. What was it like working with a real? Was it exactly the same or was there some differences there? Uh, broadly the same, except that the Rio uh, had a uh, launch button in the back. So okay. he could launch the Phoenix, you know, the Phoenix missile and stuff like that. The way the United States Navy worked was the Rio tended to do the radios. Right. Yeah, why not? Well, the pilots flying around the boat, busy, stuff like that. So, yeah, so the Rio basically did all the comms. That's handy. Yeah, it's just different. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but it was very much... Like the Phantom, it was a team working together. The rear would come left, do this, do that. But you had a much better display in the front than we had in the Phantom. Was it reciprocated in the back of what? Yeah, so it was a repeat yeah. of what yeah, they were seeing. Yeah. But it, had a, it was a much more God's eye view that was what was going on as opposed to the Phantom. But yeah, just hugely reliable and stuff like that. Good weapon selector. You know, automatic wing sweep, fantastic. Yeah. You could put it into manual wing sweep on your um, inboard thrust lever. There's a little coolie hat. Coolie hat, this is? That's probably politically not correct nowadays, so <laughs> forgive me. But a switch which put it up into auto wing sweep, down into bombing mode, which put it back to 55 wing. Or you could sweep the wings forward or sweep them back. You could never sweep them forward of the computer commanded position to overstretch them. But you used to sweep the wings back, all the way back to 67 for coming into the brake, and then you'd pop it down to bomb and it put these glove veins out. Oh, yes. Yeah, so that's how you get your glove veins out. So you come in all nice and tight, you know, 67 wing, and then as you brake, you just pop the wings back into automatic and they would gracefully come out. Yeah. You know, good old Navy expression, better to die than look bad. <laughs> but, you, but you had to look good around the field. Yeah. And, and that was it. So, yeah, you always did that. Yeah. And it was... Fantastic. So what happened after we'd completed our conversion course, uh, my job was deputy weapons phase leader. So in charge of the sort of gunnery, strafe, okay. and that sort of thing. So it was fantastic. And I'll talk to you about my boss in a minute. He was fantastic. Uh, Stu became the basic fleet air superiority intercepts and also the, the ECM guru, if you like, out there. Uh, so that was 
Hisai House, and we used to work in this office called the Phase Leaders Office, which is where all the you know Phase Leaders work together. My Phase Leader boss was a tap called Lieutenant Commander Joe Satrapa. Hosel, Hosel was his name. Absolutely fantastic guide. He'd flown vigilantes in oh, Vietnam, wow. stuff like that. He was uh, pretty much high tone deaf, as I remember. <laughs> if, you have, if you ever dropped a quarter or something like that in the phase leader's office, Hosa couldn't hear it if it hit the floor, stuff like that. He was a big uh, weapons, munitions man, used to pack his own ammunition. Did he really? Oh, yeah, go off hunting. Oh. His ambition, he told my time. <laughs> was he, he used to bring in, again, I apologise for political correctness, but basically he used to go off hunting and shooting and he'd come in the phase leader's office, you know, wondering, ah, I've been out for the weekend. He used to call me Courtney, bless him. <laughs> but out for the weekend, Courtney, I brought you a Bambi burger for your lunch. Bambi burger. I did hear, I did read later, this ambition was to set up a uh, 20 millimetre gun, which was the gun that we had, Mount it on a tripod and use it to shoot. Yeah. How is it really? Anyway. It's so American, isn't it? Yeah, but it's so American. <laughs> I then read in the uh, Navy Times many, many years later that he was now known as Tozer, not Hoser, because he'd obviously done something with this gun and he'd actually blown his thumb off. They called him Tozer because they'd operated, removed his big toe and stitched it on in replacement of his thumb. Stuff like that, but you know. <laughs> you couldn't write that, could you? Yeah, it was only Hosa, and he was married to an ex-nun. How the hell do you meet That's a sitcom waiting to happen. <laughs> yeah, but, but absolutely delightful chap. I hope he's still with us, because he, he was a legend, a fantastic guy to work for, mm -hmm. fantastic guy to fly with. Mm -hmm. So, that was top, uh, if you like, that was the uh, gunfighter, as our squad was called, VF-101. That was job, that was what we did. Fantastic. Yeah, had a really good time there for, uh, well, just under three years, about two and a little bit. What they let us do also was go on cross countries. So one of the things I got qualified on was TARPS, which was the Tactical Air Reconnaissance Pod System, which was mounted on the bottom of the uh, Miley Tomcat. Because then they used to do the training at weekends and you used to get to fly low level in the States nice. in various places. Fantastic. So you literally get a Tomcat Friday night, blast off, go to a low level, go down to Cecil, hot pit refuel, and then either down to Pensacola, you know, night stop Pensacola, a few beers, and then off the next day somewhere else, or down to Key West. So it was fantastic. Yeah, for, you know, Bachelor, 27 in the States, getting the blast off, absolutely fantastic. The world's best fighter at the time. Yeah, exactly. That. <laughs> When it came to combat, it was interesting. It, it happened, I think, later on in the tour when a chap called Pappy Ernst uh, became our boss, took over the Squadron 101. Now, Pappy had been the boss of Top Gun. Okay. So, fantastic uh, combat instructor, stuff like that. One of the things I think the Air Force suffered from at the time was we used to debrief combat, but I'm not sure we actually taught combat and stuff like yeah. that. So you debrief the elements, stuff like that. No, Pappy brought in this matrix fighting, which was basically how you would fight a specific type of adversary. You know, somebody who was superior to you in performance, somebody who's inferior to you in performance. So we looked at rate fighting and radius fighting, which Pappy introduced, which was fantastic. 
worked out very well and certainly I think improved the capability of the pilots and the uh, Rios coming out of mm. VF-101. We had the advantage being based at Oceana, the air combat instrumentated range, the ACMI, was literally just off the coast. So the majority of the combat sorties were done on the tax range, so you go and debrief them and watch what goes on. Right. And you know, that was fantastic. During the course, they actually went up to what we used to call 2VX. So the people you would generally find, you start off 1v1 F-14 against F-14, but it very quickly then graduated against to, uh, there was VF-43 who had, uh, they had, what did they have? They had F-5s. Uh, Skyhawks, maybe, did they have them? Ah, VC-12 had the Skyhawks. Right. Who were the other, because they were a reserve outfit. And I think VF-43 had some Skyhawks, but don't quote me. Towards the end of my tour, they ended up getting the Kafir, which was an Israeli fighter. Yes, yes. A bit like a Mirage, yeah. more Mirage, stuff like that. So those are the things that we actually fought, and those were the things that the uh, students going through the course fought. So they actually fought dissimilar air combat, you know, as part of the course. And their graduation sort was two VX. So it was two, they didn't know how many fighters there were. It could be up to six, but more often than not, it was four. Mm. It used to be two V4. And it would be a couple of A4s and a couple of F5s, flown by some very capable pilots. How did the F14 fare against them types? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Because bearing in mind, we didn't get, we weren't into the, well, we ignore the Fox 1s. No, all missile oh, yeah. shots count. So you could generally get a Fox 1 away, generally it would get defeated by a manoeuvre. The problem the F-14 had was we were so big, we were always fight centre. Yeah. Everybody could see us, yeah. but could we see everybody else? No. Yeah. But the, the radar was very good and stuff like that. So that was the gist of the course. <clears throat> what happened to Stu and I, again, we go back to there's no such thing as a two-sticker. So when the pilots went to the boat for the first time, they went with an experienced Rio in the back seat. So Stu had been out to the boat, I don't know, probably four or five carry qualifications. Oh, so he was there before you? No, no, we were oh, there at the same time. Same time. Oh, okay, right, got you. But bearing in mind, you know, he was trained up as a navigator to Rio, so he went out to the boat with them. Yeah. You know. First time he went out with the experienced pilot, so he could see what it looked like around the boat, but then he went out with the student pilots, the boat. But they said to me, well, you can't go home having never been to the boat. He said, mm -hmm. right, so, yep, yeah, good news is, we're happy to send you to the boat. We'll send you with Stewie, because then if anything goes wrong, we'll just ask for a new crew. You know, it cuts down on the paperwork. In preparation of going to the boat, what you do is do what they call field carrier landing practice. So in the middle of a swamp, a place called Fentress, nine million miles away from Oceana, I think it was about, what, 15 minutes flight time? And it's set up like a carrier. So you go out there at night and you do 10 touch and goes, literally come out, touch, touch. There's a landing signals officer at LSO that grades your approaches, each individually, and said, so, you know, and graded from, you know, cut past, which is bad, but to up to an OK, or an OK underline, which is, you know, really nice approach, no comment. Don't think I ever saw one of those. <laughs> so you did that, and if they were happy, and you did 10 touch and goes per FCLP period, and you did 10 FCLP periods, they would then send you to the boat. So off you'd go to the boat with the navigator that you trained with. I must admit, that was a, you see I'm wearing glasses, that was one of the things I found during the FCLP period 
we're coming around on the final turn to look like, and Stu goes, you're high. And I go, you can see the ball from here? He said, yeah, you're high. I, go, I, can't, I can't see it. So off to the flight surgeon, that's where I found out, I had an astigmatism and needed glasses. It made the rest of the field carrier procedure a whole lot easier. Now I could see what was yeah. going on. But again, unless Stu had said that, I wouldn't have realised. So, now that, off we go to the boat. And I must admit, it was the Big John, CB67, uh, John F. Kennedy. Beautiful boat. We get out there, and I'm looking down and think, bloody hell, that's small. Mm. You know? So, so we're, we're out there. The Stu said, yeah, no problem. So anyway, come in. You do two touch and goes with the hook up, just so the LSO can look at you. Are you safe? Is he happy for you to put the hook down and you know attempt yep. an arrested landing? Fantastic. What could possibly go wrong? Mm. So my experience of arrested landings in the Phantom was at the field, and you'd had hydraulic failure or whatever, and you come in, uh, put the hook down, normal approach, tuck down, trundle, 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 trundle picks up the rest of gear, and you gently stop. Mm. Fantastic. So that was my expectation on the boat. I never locked my harness. I didn't like locking harnesses because you want to move around in the cockpit, stuff like that. So we're coming around, final approach. We've been cleared to put the hook down. Street, gunfighter, whatever we were, 123 Tomcat ball. And it was, as I said, nice approach. We're flying it down, nicely, nicely, nicely. Next thing I know, we've been snatched out of the sky <laughs> because on the boat, the hook arrestment and the touchdown is almost simultaneous. There's not enough room in here to demonstrate, but I was buried around the other side of the control column, you know, head down like this. I'd got full power on, because you taught that. So full power, buried in the arresting gear, and <laughs> over the uh, radio comes this voice. The air boss sits up there on the island, and the air boss is clearly looking down at you, and, and the big American boomy voice says, Okay, son, we got you. You can come back on the power. You're not make my ship go any faster. <laughs> so, <laughs> embarrassment, you know, pick yourself out of the debris, you know. Boom, sweet, boom. And then you're literally out of that, up to the front, and they're going to blast you off the boat. So oh you literally God. do trap, shoot, trap, shoot. Now, being a smart cookie back in my younger days, one of the carrier air group commanders, one of the next ones, was a chap called Whiskey Bob. I wish I could remember his proper name. But I said to Whiskey Bob, you've been to the carrier many, many times. What should I do? What, you know, I'm my first cat stroke. How do I see it? What do I do? Stuff like that. He said, okay. He said, right. Don't put your head forward or back. He said, try not hold your head about a mid position because what happens when the nose um, or when the tug bites, you go down. Mm. So that'll throw your head forward. And then as it starts to pull, it'll throw your head back. So if you put your head back, you'll get rattled forward. If you put your head forward, you'll get rattled back. So just try and hold it in the middle, hold the thrust, and try and monitor your engine instruments. And they were tapes in the F-14, tapes. And yeah, yeah. Monitor your engine instruments, he said, so that if you do get an engine failure during the cat stroke, you'll pick it up. Fantastic, great advice. So, taxi up, up to the thing. We get hooked up, stuff like that. Stu, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. You do the salute, because that may be the last salute you ever get. <laughs> and then, boom. Now, Whiskey Buzz of Ice, it bit, and I was about to say, I don't know, it was holy, use expression, but because of the G-force on the cat stroke, I got the 
out because you can't breathe. Really? Yeah, you, right. you literally can't breathe during the stroke. And then as you come off, you can start breathing again. You know, it's only a matter of a second, but it's literally, so I was going to say, holy, and then we're airborne. So I got back to the ready room after we'd done all this. Uh, Whiskey Bob said, how'd it go? I said, yeah, I really enjoyed it, lots of fun. How about the morning? Didn't see a damn bloody thing. Because <laughs> it's just, you know, yeah. boom. You know. Yeah, when you've done two or three, you, you know what to expect yeah. of that. But, yeah. That's absolutely incredible. So let's, I want to talk a bit about the Tonkat itself. What would you say the strengths and weaknesses of the aircraft were? Well, partly as mentioned, the fact that you always flew with a fully serviceable aircraft. And it always worked. The, the performance was outstanding. And the radar, it was just, you know, fantastic. And the weapon system was on your control column, on your stick. Basically, you had the weapon selector, which was up and down. So you had Phoenix, um, Sparrow, as it was for them, Winder, and guns. And you're literally up and down. So it was easy to select the weapon system. Mm -hmm. You had, I think it was four combat modes in terms of the radar where you could take control of the radar and lock up to a target that you'd seen, or you could get it to search for somebody in a box coming towards you. Uh, the Phoenix, although designed for a long-range missile, because it was the, the Tornado, sorry, Tornado, Tomcat was designed for fleet air superiority, you know, to protect the fleet. So it had all this array of weapons, but even the Phoenix, when you got in close, was a no-escape no shot, you know, mm. you know it, would, it would take people out. And it was just—it was just such a lovely aircraft to fly, you know. The Phantom, you had to be a bit careful because you could depart it, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, you could depart the Tomcat, but no, and you never got anywhere close to that. And it was just—it's, you know. Did you have any problems with the the engines at the time, the A models? No, no. You're talking about because it was the A models that I flew all the time. Yeah, it was the joke if it said Pratt and Whitney on the engines, <laughs> better, better, better say Martin <laughs> Baker on the seats. But no, that was a standing joke. No, I had. In my whole time, I had two engine failures. That's while it? I was out there. Yeah. Over a thousand hours and that's, yeah. wow. So, no. So it wasn't as big a deal as everyone kind of makes out? No, I think it was. Probably more, bearing in mind the operations that we were doing, the OCU, are slightly more benign than carrier ops. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, probably the more challenging for the boys on the carriers and stuff like that. But no, for us, it was fine. Yeah. yeah. What was the social life like as a Brit over there? <laughs> <laughs> Did it help or hinder you? <laughs> oh, it never hindered us. Um, because it was interesting because fantastic, you know, it was work hard, play hard. You went to the O Club, you know, Wednesday night, Friday nights was the big night in the O Club. And there, I mean, there was a sign as you walked in the O Club. Through these portals walked the bravest of men and the prettiest of women. <laughs> You know, there's, for that, you know, I think he should have read the other way around. It's, you know, <laughs> the prettiest of men are probably the bravest of women. But that, yeah. and that was it. There was in the back bar, there was, uh, I suppose you'd call her an exotic dancer, used to appear. Oh, wow, okay. So about five to seven on, on a Friday night and stuff like that. And no, it was just, it was a really good social scene, mm -hmm. stuff like that. A lot of good parties, uh, you know. Lots of young fighter pilots, navigators, not quite like Top Gun. I don't remember singing in the bar. No, no, no. That'd be a fair so. few beers, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think we'd have probably sung more rugby songs than we would have, you know. Yeah. But no, it was a fantastic social life. Mm -hmm. It really was, you know. So would you always um, go like on these social events with uh, Stu or would you go separately or? No, good question. Uh, no, Stu and I, uh, 
there's another story that I'll come back to. No, Stu and I were very much a crew while we were out there, but Stu had his sort of social yeah. life. I had mine, because Stu was married, you know, and stuff like that. But we did have one thing you did. Uh, one of your questions about uniform and stuff like that. Yeah, flight suits and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we, tend, we wore the American flight suits and stuff like that, and you had American helmets because yeah. of the compatibility of that. But one of the things Stu and I always did, we coordinated. When you go to work, you didn't go to work in a uh, flying suit. You went to work in... Uniform. Oh, really? Yeah. That was just the way they did. Okay, right. So Stu and I coordinated so that we never showed up in the same <laughs> uniform one day. It was also a different <laughs> set of uniform just to keep them guessing. You know, like, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, one day, Stu would wear shorts, I'd wear long pants. They thought it was absolutely amazing that we wore yeah. khaki shorts with the big long socks and yeah. stuff like that. And we'd always wear what we used to call our brothel creepers, the old sort of desert boots oh, yes. and stuff like that. But, yeah, but we, ne- we made sure we never wore the same uniform at the same time, just to keep them guessing. We did have our, um, if you like, sponsor officer, the group captain from Washington, come down, came down once a year to do an inspection. Uh-huh. Um, when he came down, of course, that was the one day that we did wear the same. Yeah. That was We've never seen you wear those black <laughs> shoes before. <laughs> what are those? Well, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, we digress. But yeah, it was it was good social life. Re- yeah. re- really fun. Uh, one of my mates out there, Pete Williams and I used to hang around together because he lived very close to my apartments. And we used to go, it was Monday night. I can't remember the name of the bar, but they used to do nickel beers and free burgers. So Monday night was our health night. So we used to go there and watch American football, drink beer, burgers, uh, yeah. sorry, eat burgers and drink beer. I would expect nothing less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, like for the, some people like flight gear out there, how do you find the American helmets con- Fantastic. Uh, much better really, than the yeah. RAF ones? Right. Much lighter weight, really comfortable, you know, didn't know the he- heavy visor system and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic. One other thing, you remind me of social life, although more flying as well. So, Virginia Beach, Virginia, fantastic weather, stuff like that. However, in the Navy's wisdom, not for combat. So what used to happen during what they called the winter months, which was September through to about March time, we used to deploy down to Key West. So two weeks in six, we used to go down to Key West to do combat because the weather down at Key West, much better. Fantastic. What a social life that was. Because mm. what you used to do was you do two morning waves and two afternoon waves and you'd be on one or the other. So you'd start on the two morning waves doing two sorties of combat, debrief that. In the afternoon, you'd be off snorkeling, spear fishing, you know, just off Key West. You know. You're getting paid for this. And you're getting paid for this. <laughs> uh, and another one was doing, we hurricanes were an issue out there. Yeah. And I remember one time we, uh, we hurricaned out of Virginia Beach. So literally you fly all the aircraft away uh, and this hurricane, it was Hurricane Gloria. Why I remember that, I don't know. Anyway, we ended up getting down at uh, Key West and then it reversed. And so we had to get the hell out of Key West. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, our aircraft went US. So Stewie and I got stuck in Key West when the hurricane comes through. Mm. Now there's a famous bar down in Key West, which Stewie and I were in having a few beers. <laughs> And uh, it was an NBC news report came up, started talking to us, you know, because they tell their what are you doing here? You know, we're on exchanges and stuff like that. And uh, she said to Stu, we had a few beers again. I said to Stu, he said, what do you think of the hurricane? 
I thought I was drinking Budweiser. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> So yeah, it was work hard, play hard. Absolutely. So to wrap up this uh, part on the Tomcat, do you have any, you probably have loads, but maybe a few memorable stories from flying the actual jet? Well, there's one I told you about the carrier landing. There was a, another one, the air-to-air gunnery. Uh, we used to, in the F4, against the Canberra. So the Canberra turns a banner, boom, and you shoot it. And it turns, so you cut inside it to shoot at it. The Americans had this thing called a squirrel cage. And what that is, is, excuse me, fire apart, use my hands. So the banner, towed by an A4 or an F-14, we actually use to tow them ourselves occasionally, flies a straight line. <clears throat> there are four fighters shooting at it at the same time, oh, wow. hence the squirrel cage. Yeah, so what you have is one up here, 5,000 feet high on the perch, one passing a beam, the banner, one tipping in down here, and one who's come off coming up. Right. So, so it's a flow like that. Yeah, so it's, you spend as much time avoiding everybody else as you do looking at the banner. Anyway, I, Jeff Crumley was, I'm sure it was Crumbs was call sign. Crumbs is in my back seat, and basically you have an instructor pilot with an instructor navigator out, three student pilots with their rears in the back doing this gunnery pattern. So we're doing it. And uh, I remember talking about Hoser, you know, how do you do it, how do you shoot, and stuff like that. So anyway, he said, you know, well, you know, really, you know, push in there, shoot, and go. And he said, you know, just relax, go behind the banner, and up. Anyway, so he came in, and I remember Crumbs at the back said, uh, you hit it. I said, yeah, no, it felt like a good pass. He said, no, you hit it. <laughs> no, yeah, it was a good pass. He said, no, look at the left wing. Oh no! <laughs> and we take the square out of this banner <laughs> that we shoot at. I think I've got it in the loft somewhere at home. What do I say? So yeah, so very lucky because yeah. at the front of it, there's a uh, metal spreader bar, which is a, a pipe about this thick. Sadly, one of our guys did hit that a few months later, but uh, right. but all about safe. So that. What else did Stu and I did a cross country. And this was uh, basically, at the end of the quarter, if you didn't spend your money, your fuel, you lost it. Right. So if there was a big spend we made, they would send Tomcats off, you know, burning fuel. Yeah. So Stewie and I did the four corners of the States. So yeah, so we took off from Oceana, went to a place called Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. There must have been a great businessman out there because what he said, Tulsa is sort of mid-country from going east to west coast. So what he'd set up was this refueling, military refueling contract, whereby all the fighters would go in there, going east to west, because when you got there, these lovely young ladies in hot pants and t-shirts would come out and meet you on a golf cart, take you in, give you a sandwich, turn your aircraft around, refuel it. Well, why wouldn't you go yeah. there? <laughs> so went there, Miramar, night stopped at Miramar Wednesday for their party then up to George Air Force Base in the high desert to visit one of our old mates. We then ended up up in um, Washington State, and I can't remember the name of the bloody air base was there. Anyway, we landed at this air base to be a static for an air show okay. and stuff like that. And we'd actually painted two Union Jacks on the side really? of the, yeah, stuff like that. Plus we've got our Union Jacks on a flight suit. We knew we were in trouble when we walked into the officers club and at the entrance to the officers' club, it said, "These wheel the wheelchairs are for in-club use only." Mm -hmm. And we're thinking, "What on earth have we come to? Have we come from Australia and stuff like that?" Uh, and the place was 
desperate. And so we stopped for the air show and we thought, right, we're going to get out of here. We're not staying in. So we said, right, let's go up into Canada. So we flew up into Canada. That's not there. We get there and bloody sod's law, there's a beer strike on. So we get his airlink on and we say, Canada, oh, beer strike on. Carlos, then we then came back round and landed back at Virginia Beach, having been away. I think we did about four or five days on the road. But fa yeah, fantastic. Absolutely amazing, yeah. yeah. So, you know, they really looked after us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how many hours did you get on the F-14 and did you enjoy your exchange to over there? Oh, well, the answer to the last question is fantastic. Uh, and we'll come on and we'll talk about the F-2 later on or the F-3, bless it. <laughs> but yeah, fantastic tour. I had a, a great time. Wouldn't have, wouldn't have changed it for the world. Uh, Stewie got, I think he got about 1,200 hours and I think he got 100 traps, don't quote me. But yeah, he must have been close to 100 traps. For me, I had my massive 10 day and six night traps. But yeah, 1,023 hours on the uh, Tomcat. Also got time on the A4 and the F5 because one of the things well, I didn't mention, when I went out there, one of the first things I had to do in January was to do instrument school. So they have a proper instrument school to get instrument ready. So I actually ended up going down to Key West again at the start of the tour for four weeks doing an instrument course mm. on the Skyhawk, which I'd never flown before either. Wow. So no, it was marvellous experience, absolutely marvellous. Not jealous at all. <laughs> <laughs>